Chapter 14, One True Course, taken from the journals of Max Landau, date 148 DD, 138 days into our voyage. The morning after the burning of Haven bore witness to a strange scene. The day began like any other. The crew rose with the sun, dropping from their hammocks as Bob the Cannibal rang the breakfast bell. In recent weeks, meals have developed into a high-stakes affair. Jenna, bored with our food's lack of variety, has begun experimenting with spices. Each morning bears witness to new creations that swing from rhapsodic to inedible to everything in between. That morning, thankfully, Jenna's experiments, you could hardly call them food, did not squeeze tears from our eyes so much as burn our brains awake. Who needs coffee when you have a bored chef? With Jenna's food powering us, the crew fled the mess to go about the usual business of maintaining the ship. Ropes were tied, decks were swabbed, all while Mr. Stig stood at the helm for the 24th straight hour, as if exhaustion was something experienced by other people. The bandaged man did not appear tired. In fact, he sang, as he did every morning, an old sea shanty in his high, smooth voice. The song lingered. Stiggs's voice was pure, and though he sang it each morning, the crew never told him to stop. At first, I believed they were as scared of our helmsmen as I was. But as our voyage continued, I too grew fond of the song. It told the story of an old sailor, his wife, and the love they bore each other. I'd heard it once before on the mainland, but never sung like this in Stiggs's high falsetto, and it was made all the better for the liberties he took with the lyrics. Each morning, Stiggs conjured new verses into existence, deepening the tale to absurd new levels, growing it in audacity, hilarity, and deviancy with each passing day. After two months, I found myself in several heated shouting matches debating the identity of the sailor's wife. I've gone red in the face, attempting to convince any who will listen that the sailor's wife is either a human, the ship herself, the sea, a whale, a mermaid, a school of fish swimming in the pattern of a beautiful woman, And then, of course, the sailor's own mother. All arguments appeared sane at the time. But now, only in the writing of these theories do I realize that the sailor's wife is most obviously himself. On that morning, as with all mornings, Stiggs did not sing alone. Softly, hesitantly, attempting to match the ever-changing melody, the strings of a violin drifted down from the crow's nest. The two, voice and instrument, folded over the other, the violin growing in confidence until it was anyone's guess if Stiggs or Mookie was leading the other. All the while, the crew stepped in time with the music, completing their chores to its calming rhythm. Behind Stiggs crouched Dawn, executing her morning exercises, completely in the nude. In our voyage's infancy, Dawn's acrobatic series of stretches, flips, and fighting stances did equal parts to embarrass and arouse. Now, nearly three months later, It had grown so commonplace to lose all evidence of both. Don's exercises blended into the scenery like the gelded wrapping rope, Stiggs' sweet song, or the triplets, Keisha, Carlo, and Krill, arguing conspiracy theories of the continent we left behind. Several brave crew members had even joined Don, doing their best to mimic the bald woman's movements. Don did not dissuade her would-be occults, nor did she give them direction or words of encouragement. 
She simply continued, sparing slight glances of amusement as the uncoordinated or unable collapsed to the deck. After three months, only the most dedicated remained, their twists, rolls, and flips smoothing into expertise with each passing day. I have grown to treasure these mornings. They are my lone source of comfort on this sea of loneliness. I sit amongst the hustle and bustle on my stool, writing. Stig's and Mookie's strange music and the alluring smell of Jenna and Bob's cooking helps me forget where I've been, and perhaps worse, where I'm going. But on that morning, the calm was interrupted when something broke our pleasant routine, something that has not happened since we began our journey all those months ago. I had only just sat on my stool, settling in for a long morning of chronicling the inane and grotesque habits of my crewmates, when the door to the captain's cabin banged open, nearly catching a passing bob in the face. The opening of the door wasn't in itself a fantastical occurrence. Many, myself included, expected the emergence of the latest crewmate the captain had taken a passing interest in, only to discard the following morning. By my count, almost half the crew have spent at least one night inside the captain's cabin, while none have been invited back for a second audition. But it was not Krill, Jenna, or even Mr. Stiggs who stepped out on that fine sunny morning, who was the captain herself. Scarf tied neatly around her eye, hat snugly hugging her head. Her clothes were still rumpled, but each button threaded through the proper corresponding hole. And most shockingly of all, she was sober. Each happy morning ritual froze as Captain Sophia Destro swept to the helm where she instantly began a heated conversation with Mr. Niles Parbat. As one, the crew edged closer to eavesdrop. Parbat's charming smile was in full effect, but, and I may have imagined it, that perfect grin strained to meet its usual radius. Arms crossed and leaning back in a superior sort of way, the captain did not seem mollified by whatever her first mate was saying. Stiggs, hand still on the wheel, his song a distant memory, stared straight forward, doing his best to ignore Mom and Dad arguing. As we inched closer, Barbat's eyes widened, his smile fading into a grimace. He grabbed for the captain's arm, but Destro slapped it away in a single, graceful movement. Silence thickened between them, Barbat's expression shifting from surprise to dawning realization to anger. And then he spoke, his voice lifted high enough for us to hear. You wish to change our course? The captain's smile turned smug as she nodded. And whose course will we follow if not mine, Parbat snapped. I could tell the captain was enjoying whatever game she was playing. With unneeded flamboyance, Sophia Destro swung her arm through the air to point directly into the middle of her skulking crew. His, she said. All eyes followed the captain's finger to the shocked, terrified, and confused face of Willis Darabell. Him? Parback growled in disgust. Me? Willis stuttered. You, the captain said, her smile widening, her eyes shining like a predator ready to pounce. You are the owner of this ship, are you not? It should be you who sets the course. Poor Willis. Though our friendship lay in tatters, my heart ached for him. Sweat stained his desperately bobbing throat. His eyes twitched right and then left looking for friendship, for help, for anyone to step in and save him. He found none. He was a rat, caught in a trap. Well, Mr. Darabell, the captain said, snapping the trap closed, what shall be our course? 
I did not speak. Willis was the last of our crew I'd choose to decide our course. What was worse, I'm sure Willis would agree with me. But now, stuck inside this strange power play of captain and first mate, my old friend had no choice but to straighten, place both sweating hands on his hips, and name the only direction that made sense to a non-sailor growing up on legends of the endless ocean. South, he stuttered. A cruel chuckle rippled through the crew, but the captain appeared satisfied. She smiled and flipped her compass open. I'm shocked, Mr. Parbat, she said, not sounding shocked at all. You have us sailing southwest. That is not what our employer has requested. Please make accommodations. Mr. Parbat's eyes nearly popped from his head. He took a step towards his captain, wrapping one hand around her wrist. He spoke silently, but it seemed the very ocean quieted to hear his words. You would sail us blindly south on the word of that boy? Where are we sailing now, if not blindly? The captain challenged, placing her hand gently over his. Is there something setting our course southwest? Because if so, I'd like to know what that is. Parbat's mouth opened, then closed. His eyes darted, identical to Willis's. But like Willis, he found no help. He took a breath, then spoke. Mr. Stiggs, please alter our course 45 degrees port side as the captain commands. Mr. Stiggs obeyed. Destro slid a bottle of whiskey from her belt, uncorked it, and took a giant swig. I'll be in my cabin, she said with a satisfied smile. Then she turned and walked away, leaving behind a seething parbat and a curious crew. The day proceeded normally from there. The crew returned to their duties, and the captain remained in her cabin. The Alabaster Queen sailed on, but, though I am no navigator... I could have sworn Mr. Stiggs turned the wheel ever so slightly back starboard. The following morning, Dawn slipped out of her clothes, leaving her panting occults flat on their backs. Stiggs and Mookie's song played a bit off-key, leaving a general tension amongst the crew. And on her break from cooking lunch, Jenna stepped out beside me, took one look at the listless crew, and said, Any good sailor can tell when a storm is coming. The storm came indeed, when Sophia Destro stormed out of her cabin, calling Niles Parbat's name. Parbat stepped to meet her, his jaw set, his eyes calm. Again, the crew inched closer to listen, but the captain had learned her lesson about prying ears and kept her words silent, but no less sharp. However, as tempers rose, so too did their voices. It's for your own good, Parbat snapped. Get back on the right course, the captain yelled back. It was then that Parbat crossed his arms, stood to his full height, and said, No. Silence fell across the Alabaster Queen, broken only by the whispering gasp of Keisha. The captain's eyes narrowed dangerously. Are you disobeying me, Niles? she said. Only if you refuse to see reason, he retorted. I'll see reason when you tell me why we're still sailing southwest, the captain demanded. But Niles Parbat was not willing to divulge that information. For a moment, a mad impulse told me to speak up. After all, I alone knew the story of the mother, had seen the line of trees setting our course. I could have stopped what came next. But I did not. And more's the pity. The captain spoke. First mate Niles Parbat, you are removed from duty, effective immediately. The words echoed through the crew, rooting us to the spot. No one spoke. No one even breathed. Parbat did not seem phased. 
He smiled coolly. You think you can run this ship without a first mate? No, the captain retorted. Just without you. Fine, Parbat laughed. Name my replacement, then. If you can remember any of their names, that is. The captain turned away from her former first mate and towards her waiting crew. Her drunken eyes jumped from Don to Jenna to me, without a moment of recognition. I almost felt embarrassed for her. You could always choose Mookie, Parbat said smugly, although he might change the dress code. The captain bristled, then pointed once again to the only crew member whose name she knew. Willis Darabelle, I name you first mate. The joke lasted half a day before we realized it wasn't. Mr. Parbat went below deck to work out his frustration on the oars. The captain sat on my stool, her face rigid, her gaze dissecting her crew for hints of mutiny. And Willis, poor Willis, stood behind Mr. Stiggs, giving orders towards a direction he could not find, even if someone handed him a compass. Do you think he even knows Stiggs is ignoring him? Bob whispered to Jenna. The squat chef only shrugged. The days passed like this for a week, then a month. Gone was the singing and the morning rituals. The Alabaster Queen was crewed by the silent and led by the drunk and the ignorant. The silence only broke at night when Mr. Parbat knocked on the captain's door, vainly hoping to convince her to shift course. Each night we lay in our hammocks, listening to the captain and former first mate screaming through the floorboards. Reminds me of my parents, Bruce the Gelded joked. Reminds me of my marriage, Jenna piped in. But then, one night, after nearly two months of open ocean and open warfare, it happened. I lay in bed, doing my best to ignore the captain's hoarse voice as she hurled death threats at Niles Parbat. I prayed that night, as I did every night, to the gods I don't believe in. For them to just shut the fuck up. And for the first and only time in my life, the gods answered. Though, not in the way I'd hoped. A screech silenced their verbal combat. I rose from my hammock, only to be thrown backward by a fountain of ice-cold water, erupting from somewhere, drenching me to the bone. I fell to the hull, dazed. The ship filled with screams and orders. I cleared my eyes just enough to see the jagged edge of a rock, protruding from the outer hull of the ship. The crew forced blankets into the gaps. Fear froze me like no water could. The Alabaster Queen had been run aground. This has been The Endless Ocean, and I'm its creator, Keenan Ellis. I'd like to do some thank yous here, if you don't mind. First, I'd like to thank my patrons over at patreon.com. I really appreciate all the love and support. Your patronage actually just makes all of these episodes possible. If you'd like to join them and support the show, please head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com foolsgallery. There's a whole set of amazing new rewards waiting for you there. 
rewards like a short comic written by me. There's also um, secret episodes of The Endless Ocean that I absolutely promise exist. And by far my favorite, at season's end, uh, a physical copy of book one of The Endless Ocean will be mailed directly to your door with a personalized thank you written inside the cover. So to all my patrons, both present and future, I'd like to say thank you. I'd also like to give a big shout-out to the people over at Sword Coast Soundscapes. They design all the incredible ambient sound in the background of each episode. If you have your own project or just want to GM a super immersive D&D game, they're an incredible resource and they're just a Google away. A special thank you must go out to Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.filmmusic.io for the incredible musical piece used in this episode. The song is called Long Road Ahead, and though I cut it up a little bit, all the power and emotion come straight from Kevin. If you're looking for amazing music to score a podcast, short film, or just to rock out to, check out Kevin's work at incompetech.filmmusic.io. I've uh, attached the link in the episode information if you want. And lastly, thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for taking this journey with us. It really means the world to me. Some of you have written reviews or reached out personally on Instagram or Reddit, and I, I'm not going to lie. Those messages really help me get through the low points of the writing process, which, if you've ever written anything, are often and numerous. So thank you all, and I'll see you next week on The Endless Ocean. <laughs>